So we are going to be reading now from Psalm 89 in just a moment, and you can see the title in your handout that I've given for uh, our study is, There or Where Goes the King? It's a psalm that begins by celebrating the kingship of God and then the kingship of David and then asks what went wrong. Uh, It is a long psalm, so we'll take uh, a little bit to read it. So we come now to Psalm 89. A Moschiel of Ethan, the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Salah. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness, they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you have spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, 
Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Salah. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Salah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Salah. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Well, that is quite a journey. The heights of praise, the heights of confidence in God's kingship and the King David, and then this sorrowful um, prayer about what has gone wrong. So we want to ask, firstly, what kind of psalm this is. And that's not an easy question because it feels like there's a lot of different things in it. But I think the best way to describe Psalm 89 is that this is a royal lament. It's not all lament, but that's definitely how it ends. And that's the way it's to be understood as a whole. Uh, The psalm feels like a combination of different kinds of poems, doesn't it? The first 18 verses sound like a hymn of praise, don't they? They are uh, words of praise. Uh, How great God is, and there's no one like Him, and no one can defeat Him, and His way will prevail over all. And then beginning in verse 19, through really the the dominant part of the poem for about uh, 22, 23 verses, it sounds like what we call a royal psalm where it's celebrating how God has set up the house of David as uh, his, uh, his extension of government in the world, that there's this unique role that David and his house have. And there's a number of psalms that sound a lot like those middle 20 verses. But then the end of it, 38 to 51, is a lament and a painful lament. It, it, it's focusing on how it seems like God has abandoned the king. 
and allowed destruction to come in, allowed the kingship to fall, and that's how the psalm ends. And so because that seems to be the focus of where everything is going, we would call this a royal lament. Now there are really tight connections between all three of those segments of the poem, so we shouldn't think that this has been a stitched together project. And that's an approach that some interpreters have had to say, why is it that this song sounds like we're being jerked from one emotion to the next to the next? And some have theorized that, well, there was one psalm, and then there was another one, and then there was another one, and someone stitched them all together. Uh, but no, actually, if looking at the artistry of it, there are things at the end of the psalm that actually echo things said at the beginning of it. It was intentionally crafted this way. So that phrase, royal lament, seems to bring together most of the elements uh, within this poem. It, it's a, it's a po psalm that is full of faith on one hand, but also confusion as to how God is going to fulfill his promise to the house of David and to the nation of Israel when he's allowed the kingdom to falter. Uh, the psalmist is perplexed. He believes in the covenant. He believes in the promises. But what he's seeing happening in the life of the nation doesn't seem to fit. And he may well be wrong. He may not be accounting for everything that he sees, but he's expressing his confusion at what's taking place. There are other psalms that mix together different kinds of poems, uh, like this one does. And I, I won't have us turn to them, but I've listed about half a dozen different poems that start off one way and they end a very different way. They start off with words of praise, like Psalm 95 starts off with words of praise and it ends with the sermon of warning, you know, don't become a hard-hearted person. <laughs> it's a sort of an unexpected turn. So it's not, actually it's not at all uncommon for the Psalms to contain different kinds of uh, lines of poetry that seem very different. Um, <clears throat> most of the royal Psalms though are very positive. I mean, you think about Psalm 2. You know, that's, that's the first one and, and one of the most famous ones. Uh, that the Lord has set his anointed on Mount Zion and tells him, rule, uh, rule over your enemies, and uh, he's going to break them with a rod of iron, and uh, then it ends with the famous line, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be turned from the way. That kind of sets the tone for the Psalms, that the Lord has an anointed one. And then there's, of course, Psalm 110, uh, which I think looks forward only to Jesus, not to David, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. <clears throat> These are famous royal psalms. This one has some of those elements, but it ends so very differently than the others. It's the only royal lament that we have. So let's talk about what we can say about um, the background uh, to this. Now, the, the, the heading tells us that the author is someone known as Ethan the Ezraite. This is the only psalm to which his name is attached. And uh, there are actually two different, uh, well, maybe two people who are known as Ethan. Uh, why don't you keep your spot here in Psalm 89 and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4 uh, mentions an Ethan who was operating within the royal house of Solomon. 1 Kings 4, verse 31 uh, well, we'll even look at uh, verse 30. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. 
for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Haman, Calcol, and Dardah, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. So there you have an Ethan the Ezraite. And now some have wondered, is this really the same person? Because there's reference to an Ethan among the sons of Korah in the book of First Chronicles. When we turn forward to that spot, First Chronicles chapter 6 is one of the places. First Chronicles chapter 6. Uh, this is a list of those who were parts of the sons of Korah, and in verse 42, there is uh, a reference to the son of Ethan. So Ethan had a kid who was included here in the genealogy, and this really isn't the most informative one to look at. Flip forward a little bit to chapter 15, verses 17 to 19. Chapter 15. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Merari, the son, the, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushaiah. Uh, and uh, we could flip forward to, uh, let's see, let's look at verse 19 also. So the singers, Haman, Asaph, and Ethan, were appointed to sound aloud symbols of bronze. The other passages talk again about how he has this special role. The, the, the question that's not totally resolved is, are these exactly the same person or not? He's never called Ethan the Ezraite in Chronicles, but uh, I think there's a good chance that it's one and the same person. Uh, so he's, uh, if that's the case, he's one of the chief musicians within the temple. He is also regarded as a wise man. Uh, and so if you flip to the next page, I suggest that it's possible, I'd say even likely, that this is one and the same person. Um, the meaning of the title that he's an Ezraite is not clear. It does, has nothing to do with Ezra of the Bible because he lived hundreds and hundreds of years later. So this word Ezraite might mean something like a native, which perhaps, along with Heman, Heman the Ezraite, suggests that they are uh, at home in the, in the, te- in the sanctuary. Um, but we're sort of guessing about that. Well, let's, uh, about the background, Ethan was active in the ministry from the time of David on through Solomon's reign and then on into the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And his prayer that we just read concludes with this great distress about how the kingdom has deteriorated and it seems utterly defeated and in disarray. Uh, now, a big question is what time period is it that Ethan is talking about. And some feel like, well, this doesn't sound like anything from the days of Solomon or Rehoboam. And, and they, they, they'll, they'll reason, well, this sounds like instead, maybe this is describing things that would happen in the days of Josiah. Remember Josiah, who is the king of Judah in the 600s? He's a relatively young king. He's a godly king. And he gets killed in battle, tragically killed in battle, in a battle he shouldn't have gone to. Um, and the kingdom sort of spirals down. Uh, the ultimate example of the line of David faltering is under Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim rather. Jehoiakim is the king in the 500s, uh, and he is the one on the throne when Jerusalem is devastated. He's taken off into captivity, and uh, where he spends at least four decades. Young king, 
And so there's a reference in the psalm to, you know, uh, his youth being cut off. And so some think that that's referring to that. And then there's others that say, well, maybe this is from the days of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who uh, leads the Hebrews uh, back to Judah in the 400s, uh, and particularly Zerubbabel in one of the returns, they start to rebuild the temple. So the temple is back, but the kingship is not back. And some have thought, well, that's why there's no reference to the temple being destroyed. They're just lamenting that the kingship has not been built back. And I, I can see how all of those are attractive ideas. If, if the psalm by Ethan is looking forward to the future, then it might be that Ethan is acting like a prophet, foreseeing future calamities. I'm not so sure about that, because there's nothing in the poem that says that this is about events to come, but it's not impossible. Uh, another theory is that when it says it's by Ethan, that this is sort of like a pen name, meaning one of Ethan's descendants. Sort of like when some of the songs of Asaph or Asaph were actually written by his descendants at the fall of Jerusalem. Maybe that's one way to think of it. But if Ethan is talking about a calamity in his day, then here's what I think it could be. Number one, he could be lamenting how the kingdom of the north and the south has been split. Remember, after Solomon dies, Rehoboam is anointed as king, and there's a civil war. And the northern ten tribes split off, and they, uh, they appoint Jeroboam as their king instead. And the kingdom is in great uh, distress. And in addition to that, while Rehoboam is on the throne, they do suffer a terrible invasion from Egypt. And the name of the Pharaoh who comes up and destroys uh, or sacks Jerusalem is Shishak. Pharaoh Shishak. You can read about that uh, story. In fact, why don't we turn to it? Let's go to the shorter passage in 1 Kings 14. 1 Kings 14, verses 25 to 28. 1 Kings 14, verse 25. Now it happened in the fifth year of the king Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took everything even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders, the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Then it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them and would bring them back into the guard's room. And now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's names were Naamah the Ammonitess, and Abijam his son became king in his place. There were some tragic things that happened during the time of Rehoboam. Maybe, maybe that is what Ethan is lamenting here in Psalm 89. Well, go to the third page of your notes, and uh, we want to talk about an event that we know of certainty, what is being spoken about, and understanding what's here in point number three is so fundamental to understanding this psalm. 
The key underlying event behind this psalm is the special covenant that God had made with David. We refer to it as the Davidic covenant. And I want us to look at two spots. Uh, The main one is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a few, a little time after David has moved the capital to Jerusalem and he has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with the intention of setting up the tabernacle in, in, in full there. In fact, he wants to do more than that. He wants to build a permanent house for the Lord, to turn it into a temple. Um, and that's not a bad thing, although this was more of David's initiative. And so there's sort of a check that's placed upon him. Nathan the prophet comes to him. Uh, and we'll pick up our reading in, in verse 1 of Second Samuel 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who shall build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the days I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. David then responds with a great prayer of praise, and then the stories go on from here. This is really the the high point of the books of Samuel. This is the center point. Everything in the books of Samuel is leading to this story, and everything after, in a way, devolves after it. Um, I, I want you to flip forward to one other spot in 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is one of David's uh, psalms that he composes uh, before his death. It's a psalm not found in the psalms. Um, 
And why I'm bringing you to this spot is because this is where David tells us that that promise God made to him in chapter 7 was not just a promise, it was a covenant. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules men, over, uh, who rules men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly, is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. The beauty of the kingdom and the power for it to endure, David says, has been secured by a covenant. Now, a covenant, that's important language because God's covenants with key people in the Bible are the backbone of the Bible. If you take out the major covenants that are announced, the Bible sort of falls apart. The first thing that's called a covenant is the promises made to Noah about how God is going to secure the world and keep it in order. He's never going to destroy it in the same way that he did before. We don't have to wake up every morning wondering, is the world going to perish today? <laughs> uh, that God has a plan of, uh, there's a purpose and a plan for the world and there's a, some mercy intended for the world. And then there's the great covenant made with Abraham. God takes one man out of the world and says, I'm going to do something great through you. Your descendants will become my people, and through you and your people, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And then he makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai and takes those descendants of Abraham and makes a special arrangement with them that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. But for you to enjoy my presence, there is a term, you must keep this law. It's really not about how to go to heaven. It's about how to have God live in your midst and not be consumed. <laughs> and, but, and that law, that covenant, overarches so much of the Old Testament. And Israel doesn't do so well with it, do they? Centuries go by. I mean, we have the terrible book of Judges that follows after they come into the land. And so God initiates something new. He appoints a man to shepherd his people into faithfulness. He appoints David, and he makes a covenant with him. And there are some other covenants that are uh, some of lesser importance. And, of course, the final covenant to be made is the new covenant, uh, which has been initiated through our Lord Jesus and will be uh, finalized when he comes again. But the, the covenants are the backbone of the Bible. And this one, the Davidic covenant, is one of the key vertebrae. If you take 2 Samuel 7 out, so much of the Bible doesn't make sense. And so you can see why we have psalms that are celebrating the house of David because there's something extraordinarily special and significant about this king. And of course, as Christians, we know it is our Lord Jesus comes from this line. 
there, if there is no David, there is no Jesus, and there is no salvation. So the middle part, coming letter C on your handout, the middle part of Psalm 89, verses 19 to 37, is a poetic and musical retelling of that covenant that God had announced through Nathan uh, the prophet. And some of the very same words from 2 Samuel 7 are used here in Psalm 89. And actually, they are elaborated on quite a, quite a bit. There's, there's the talk about how God is going to build for uh, David a house, and not a physical house, but a, uh, a household, as it were, a dynasty that's going to spread all throughout the promised land. And there's also the promise that if the descendants of David err, if they don't keep covenant, if they are unfaithful, that God will discipline them, although not to the point of destruction. Uh, he, is, he is promised, God has, to preserve the line of David and therefore preserve the kingdom uh, despite the fact that there will be those who disobey. All of these promises were far greater than anything ever promised to the house of Saul. Uh, Saul was sort of allowed to be chosen by the nation. Uh, God approved it, but that was really more of a pace, just keeping the, the space open and helping Israel to see that God's intentions and plans were far better. Um, some have said that the, uh, the poetic retelling here is, is uh, there, there's more. In fact, I, I think I have a note about it below. Let, let's, talk, let's talk about the placement of uh, Psalm 89. I'm sort of running out of time. And uh, your notes should say that under, that's number one, not number five. Uh, Psalm 89 is intentionally placed where it is in a very prominent spot within the book of Psalms. And if you turn to the end of Psalm 89, I want you to look right before Psalm 90, and your, your Bible probably says something like book four. You see that? That's because the Psalms have been divided up into five books. And this was done back in the days when the, uh, the Psalms were compiled in their last in their final stage, probably in the 400s B.C., perhaps in the days of Ezra. Uh, so it's almost in the middle of the Psalms. Here's this long psalm that attracts a lot of attention, the glories of God's reign, the glory of David's reign, and this terrible lament, like, what happened to David's house? So by putting this in this prominent spot, Psalm 89 acts, at, we could say, as a ballast to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, near the very beginning of the Psalms, gets us thinking, wow, God's got a great king, and, and all the nations of the world are going to bow before this king. And that's true, but Psalm 89, in a way, puts the brakes on expectations that this isn't going to happen right away, that it's, we're not going to get to that point quickly. We're not going to get there in an expected way, in fact. It's a ballast to those expectations. The fulfillment of the great messianic kingdom is reserved for the future. So that's one reason Psalm 89 is placed here where it is. Um, another thing we'd note, you know, we looked last week at Psalm 88, which was by Haman the Ezraite. So these are two unique authors, and their psalms are placed right together. Both of these psalms, 88 and 89, are painful laments also. Last week we looked at Psalm 88, 
which is a, a languishing person, perhaps a sick person, chronically ill person who is, uh, at, and the psalm ends with this mournful, uh, when is this ever going to end sort of feeling. And Psalm 89 actually ends uh, that way too. Um, they both end, as we go to the, the last page, both of these psalms end with a sorrowful prayer. They both end with a sorrowful prayer. And you say, well, what about verse 52? That doesn't seem so sorrowful. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. And that's right, that is not sorrowful. But that little doxology isn't really concluding the psalm, it's concluding book three. And, and I, want you to, I want you to flip back in your Bibles to go to Psalm 41, or let's make it easy. Let's go back to Psalm 42, and right above Psalm 42 in your Bible, you'll see something that says book two. And now look at the last verse of Psalm 41. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. There's a doxology that has been positioned here at the end of this first collection of books. Go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And right above Psalm 73, you'll see in your... Um, uh, Bible, something like book three, and glance back up at the last three verses of Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. There is the end, a doxology that closes book two. And book three, we just saw, has a little doxology that closes it. And, and we'll see uh, another one as well. We flip forward to go to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, right above that, it says book five. And the end of Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. You ever wonder where preachers get that, you know, at the end of the service? And all God's people said, amen, that's, that's here it is, Psalm 106. But this is a doxology that is added to the psalm to close out this collection. So if we come back to Psalm 89, the last verse of the prayer is verse 51, which is mournful, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. It ends on this note of a question and a prayer. How long, Lord, is this tragedy going to endure? Well, I'm going to make some notes of interest here, and then next week I'll share some more interesting notes, and we'll, then we'll go into a visual outline chart of, of that. And uh, it might take a week or two for us to finish this psalm. Um, note with me, Firstly, that Psalm 89 is one of the longest psalms. And if you're counting length by verse number, this is the third longest psalm. Now, that doesn't go in your blank there. It, it's shorter than Psalm 119. That's got 176 verses. Psalm 78, which we looked at a couple months ago, has 72 verses. So if you're counting by verses, 
Psalm 89 is the third longest. But there's other ways to count this, you know. If you were to count out how many Hebrew letters are there, (laughs) if you do it that way, then Psalm 89 is the fourth longest psalm. Psalm uh, 18 has 1,615 letters. The verses are longer, whereas Psalm 89 has 1,552 letters. There'll be a quiz on that next week. No. Uh, it's just interesting to see, you know, we think of verse numbers as determining how long things are, but in terms of the amount of ink spent, it's really about how many letters are, are needed. Anyway, look at it. This is a long poem, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> one thing that binds the poem together is this sevenfold goodness. And what I mean by that is that the words loving kindness and faithfulness, each of those words show up seven times in the psalm. It's intentional. And I listed out the numbers there. We won't look at all of them, but loving kindness, in verses 1, 2, 14, 24, so on. And faithfulness uh, is in some of the same verses and then some different verses. And that's pretty intentional. And also intentional is that when the words show up, the word loving kindness, when it shows up in verse 1, the first time, and in verse 49, the last time, both of those times, it's the plural. Loving kindness is which means lots of loving kindness. Uh, When, though, the psalmist is lamenting about how the kingdom seems to have dissolved and it seems like God has abandoned the kingdom, in those verses, there's no talk about how faithful and loving God is. Those words are absent except in verse 49 where he asks, look at that verse, where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David, in your faithfulness. Now, the psalmist is only looking at things halfway. God is still faithful, and he's still showing loving kindness. He just doesn't see how it's going to come together. He's not properly understood the full flow of God's plan. When the psalmist describes uh, what's happened to the kingdom, he feels like God has left them, but actually he's not. Well, uh, two more notes of introduction. There is also in uh, the psalm the talk of the heavenly council. You see this especially in the earlier verses of the psalm. The heavenly council in in verses 5 through 8 in particular. uh, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Now that phrase can sometimes mean the Israelites gathered for worship, but when you keep going, you see that's not what he's talking about. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you, and the might of his power is then celebrated after that. Now, pagan peoples believed in pantheons, you know, that there were various gods and they fought with each other and they changed seats and things like that. And of course, the Old Testament rejects that notion. But there are nonetheless heavenly beings, some of which, you know, we, we tend to use the word angel very loosely. Uh, in the Old Testament, they would use that word more specifically. Uh, angel means messenger. 
But there's other heavenly beings that aren't messengers. There are other heavenly beings who are residents within the holy sanctuary. There's cherubim and seraphim that aren't messengers. They're, they are heavenly beings. We can say they're angelic beings, but these angelic beings comprise the heavenly council. And of all of the mighty beings that God has made in the spirit realm, none of them compare to God. None of them can stop and thwart God's plan and his kingdom on the earth. Uh, and, and that, I think, is one thing that gets Ethan wondering, well, God, you are the mighty one. I mean, there aren't even any spiritual beings that can stop you. Why has the kingdom ground to a halt? Uh, then letter D, one last note of introduction for today. The Davidic covenant is elaborated on. You know, back in the story of David and Nathan, there's, mm, I don't know, seven or eight verses. But here you have about 22, 23 verses that expound on this. And I quote here from the commentator Craig Broyles, we should note this version, that is Psalm 89's version of the Davidic covenant, escalates the promises. Escalates, that is, it, it takes the promises that were made to David and says even more about them in grander terms. It escalates the promises found in 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic king is not merely my son, like 2 Samuel 7:14 says, but he's my firstborn. His name will not merely be great like the men's of the greatest men of the earth, 2 Samuel 7, but he will be the most exalted of the kings of the earth, says Psalm 89. He will not only have rest from his enemies, 2 Samuel 7, but he'll have an empire. He will not have only a successor, but a dynasty. And the forever of Psalm 2 Samuel 7 expands into nearly five verses from 33 to 37 about how enduring the kingdom is going to be grand celebration of God's plan through David. Ah, but you know, things didn't really develop as people thought it would. David didn't turn out like everyone thought he would. It's after this covenant that God makes with him that he has his greatest spiritual fall and his sin with Bathsheba and all of the woe and distress that brings upon him. Yes, God will do great things through David and through his line, but it's not going to turn out the way everyone thought. And as more time goes on, Ethan laments, it's really not going to go the way we had thought. And this psalm helps to create a yearning for one who can come to restore and bring back the kingdom and bring back the dignity and the glory of it and to fulfill God's plan. It's a psalm that opens up room within the hearts of people for the expectation of Messiah, the capital M Messiah, the ultimate anointed one, whom we have come to know. We've come to know it through the spreading of the gospel. Uh, in the psalm, by the way, there's a reference to, uh, let's see, I forget the exact verse. Oh, verse, verse 15. How blessed are the people who have heard the joyful sound. And that's a reference to Israelites who have uh, uh, they've been in worship, and they're exclaiming the kingship of God, the joyful sound. But you know, you and I have heard an even more joyful sound. We've heard the word of the gospel. There's a hymn, by the way, that uses that line. Uh, do you know it? We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And that line comes from this psalm and the messianic expectation that it opens up. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had this morning to introduce this uh, great poem, a poem of great praise and great pain. 
Uh, and we live also in a sort of an in-between time, in between your son's first coming and second coming. And we have great expectations and also great pains as we see the world around us broken and lives broken by sin. Uh, and so we live with expectancy and knowing a little more of the plan than, than Ethan did of old, how you will bring about the glories that have been promised. So until then, Lord, keep us trusting in your faithfulness and your loving kindness, even when we can't see how things will work out, that you are with us and you have a purpose and a plan that will not fail. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.